0: So today, today and the next Sunday will be the last two Sundays on the Psalms for this part. And then we'll pick up the Psalms later on down the road later this year because on the 18th of June, Neil's going to be doing uh, the video series from that book by Carl Truman, which is about a nine-part series. Unless you're really chatty, and then it might be a longer series. So uh, anyways, but that should be a great... huh? Or maybe shorter, depending on how unchatty you can be. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so uh, that'll be really good. That'll be the one where uh, you might really want your kids to go, if you've got kids or grandkids with you. You might want them, the younger ones, to go into Peter and Janie's class for sure at that point because uh, it'll probably get into. Um, it's going to get into some stuff that's just, you know, not quite age appropriate for them as well. So, anyways, there you go. So that was that announcement. All right, let me remove this microphone here. It doesn't like my lapel. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your kindness to us. Thank you, Lord, for reminders of your goodness to us. Just thinking about the wedding this last week and seeing, seeing uh, a couple coming together and becoming uh, from two individuals, becoming, becoming one. Thank you, Lord, for the gospel being proclaimed sin being presented, but also the beauty of marriage, Lord, how our world needs to hear of that beauty. Lord, uh, we pray that you'd be with those uh, who will be traveling starting this week. Think about the Ruiz as they become world travelers. We uh, pray for them, pray for others who will be traveling. Uh, We also pray that you'd be with those who are in need, who are having issues this week. Uh, Continue to pray for Luke, uh, for Bad, and watch over him and his mom and his dad as they care for him. Be with us, Lord, as we jump into Psalm 40 and guide us and um, grow us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we are at Psalm 40. Like I said, there should be paper copies around if you don't have a copy of it. And I am going to read it. And like I said uh, last week, it seems to me that Psalm 38, 39, and 40, and maybe even 37, were intentionally... I think they're all intentionally packaged the way they are, but those four seem to go together at so many different levels, and so there's even a little bit more intentionality here. And so, uh, right up front, as I start reading Psalm 40, think about how maybe it's a bit of a resolution to some of the tensions in Psalm 38 and 39. So let me read. To the choir master of Psalm of David, I waited patiently for Yahweh. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in Yahweh. Blessed is the man who makes Yahweh his trust, who who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Yahweh my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you you have not delighted but you have given me an open ear, burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Yahweh. I have not hidden your deliverance from within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Yahweh, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Yahweh, to deliver me. O Yahweh, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha! Aha! But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say say continually, Great is Yahweh. As for me, I am poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought for me. You are my helper, my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. Beautiful psalm. So what are some things that you notice? Maybe some internal uh, repeats and connections. Maybe something external with uh, previous psalms possibly. Very good. Keep that thought. We're going to come back to that. Very good. What else? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, all that waiting uh, language. I waited patiently for the Lord. It even takes you back to uh, to Psalm 37. Uh, those who have waited on the Lord. Um and so forth so that just it keeps going back you see notice that connection very good what else anybody else other things yeah 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 right very good in fact that last part of the psalm starting at verse 12 to the end you realize he's not out of trouble Right, So keep that in mind, because that's kind of behind the title here. Deliverance in the swells of danger. Anybody ever been in a swell? You know, where the wave just comes and it swells over you and it just takes you under, you know, and it's just one run after the other. So notice that it's deliverance, but it's deliverance in the swells of danger. And so he's still, he's not out of trouble. Trouble is still around him, but there is deliverance, okay? And so that's Psalm 40. Good. All right, well, let's move on then. So deliverance of the swells of danger. Here's how I'm gonna lay, I'm gonna put this out: laid up, verses one through five; lifted high, six to eleven; lowered down, twelve through seventeen. Whoop whoop whoop. Go back, go back. Okay, that's it. So there's the three points: laid up, lifted high, lowered down. Um, and I mean laid up, not like in like you know you hurt yourself in a sports game, but you know in the sense of laid up, you're put up, you're set up in a good place. Okay, so. So we're going to start with those. That's my, my outline. All right, so where do verses 1 through 3 seem to hearken back to? Fred's kind of hinted at uh, one of those things. I waited patiently for the Lord, inclined to me, and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog, set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure, new song in my mouth, many will see in fear, etc. What does that hearken back to? Yeah, yeah. Notice how the last psalm ended. Look at the last psalm, verse 12. Hear my prayer, O Yahweh. Give ear to my cry, right? And then uh, hold not your peace at my tears. And then verse 1 of chapter 40 I waited patiently for Yahweh. He inclined to me and heard my cry, right? And so here's why I think that chapter of Psalm 40 is something of a resolution to the difficulties in Psalm 39. Because that's how Psalm 39 ends. Hear my cry. And now he says, You have heard my cry. Okay, things like that. Where else does it harken back to? Anybody else? How about the last part of Psalm, uh, of verse 2? Set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. If you go back to Psalm 38, verse 16, what did he say in verse 16? Psalm 38, 16. Yeah. Don't let them rejoice over me when my foot slips. So now he's talking here's the remedy again. You're the one who set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. So you see how these go back and forth like that. Good. Anybody else? You see anything else? Yeah. Yeah. Psalm one is definitely a, a an introductory summary of the, of the whole psalter, and you keep seeing it pop up over and over again. Very good. So, how does David how does David picture God's laying him up? <laughs> Setting him on a rock. What else? And with that, along with being set on a rock, what else? Yeah. I mean, I think about uh, the Lord of the Rings, you know, when they were in, I don't remember what it was called, you know, and there's a swampy area and they, there's smells bad and if they fall, you know, all that stuff. What you think about, when we'll talk about Pilgrim's Progress, I think again, but think about Pilgrim's Progress is he's going through the slough of despond, you know, and, and all of that. It's just that miry bog. Anybody ever been through a miry bog? Yeah. It is. It sucks at your feet. And your, and your boots want to come off because the mud is like, no, you cannot leave. You know? Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's treacherous. Right? Yeah. And you, so notice that language. You, you, you've, you've brought me out of the pit of destruction, out of a miry bog. Okay? It was sucking me down. And you pulled me up. Okay? What else? How else does he picture this being laid up? So he's brought out of the pit of destruction, of miry bog. he said, set his feet upon a rock, and now his steps are. And that's not all. What else? A new song. Yes, now he's singing. Yay! Singing is Christian. Right? we got to remember that. Never be afraid to sing. Very good. So, which prophet does this remind you of? As you listen to that language, what prophet? which prophet does that remind you of? You know any prophets maybe that were down in a pit of destruction and the mud at the bottom came up maybe to his waist or his chest possibly? Jeremiah, right? And then it was, uh, it was uh, Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian. It was a non-Israelite, right? So he's probably a believer. But it was a non-Israelite slave. Ebed means servant, melech, king. So he's a servant of the king. Actually comes and pulls him up. You may remember that story. And so here it is. It's Jeremiah 31, 1 through 13. Okay? And so, I mean, my mind, immediately when I'm reading that, just thinks about Jeremiah. Jeremiah experienced this personally firsthand. He gets down into that... Uh, cistern down at the bottom or that well they they put him in there and then he just sinks. And he's just going to die there. Yep. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, right, and that's the, that's why I'm putting the title "deliverance" in the swell of danger, right? So he's delivered, but it's not—it's danger, trouble's still there. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Banking on what God has done in the past and what He's experienced, He can have that confidence as He goes forward. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting, just as a side note... Uh, I'm, but U2, a punk rock band from the 19, um, back when I was growing up, or as a, as a young adult, uh, Bono had been raised with the Psalms. His dad was Anglican, his, I think his mom was Catholic, but he'd been raised with the Psalms. And so he takes the first three verses of Psalm 40, and it became a very popular song, it's called 40, and he sings those first three verses over and over again. you put a new song in my mouth, you delivered me. And you've set my feet upon a rock. And it became extremely popular. Talking about it being a witness to unbelievers. It's really interesting. Yeah. Alright, so what does God's deliverance do for David's steps? I already brought this up here. Um, You set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. And back in 38.16, I said only... Let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. You go back to chapter 37. He talks about um, in verse 23-24, through 24, the steps of a man are established by Yahweh when He delights in His way. Though He fall, He shall not be cast headlong for the Lord upholds His hand. He said that back in Psalm 37. He's worried that the, the those who are opposed to Him will rejoice when His foot slips, but here now He's back to his confidence, it's the Lord who set my feet firmly upon a rock, which is what he had said back in 37, he establishes my steps, okay? Um, well, before we do that one, just one other thing, uh, very quick, if you look at verse 3, the end of verse 3, many will see and fear and put their trust in Yahweh, it's really interesting, in the Hebrew, and you, you don't know this, because you don't know Hebrew. But in the Hebrew, see, the word see in Hebrew is ire. The word fear in Hebrew is ire. And it's a play on words, but it's the idea that they will see and fear that there's and there's a connection between the two. And so, for example, you remember when Elijah after Mount Carmel in um, 1 Kings 18, after the big defeat of Baal, the Baal, uh, Baal prophets and so forth, and here comes now the end of the drought, and and Ahab is being, you know, is about to be swamped because the, the rain is coming. He gets to the city, and Elijah outruns him. meets him at the gate. Uh, Ahab run, goes into the city and goes and tells Jezebel what Elijah did. And I, I, think that Elijah is sitting out, standing outside the door, hoping that this is the moment of change in the northern tribes of Israel that Ahab will repent and Jezebel will repent. But then it says, then Jezebel says. Um, that uh, he's going to have, she's going to have Elijah's head before the next day, right? And it says he feared. Or did it say he saw? There's all kinds of debate over the Hebrew word. Okay? And so was he afraid or did he see clearly, oh, there will be no change. And so then he runs. And that's how I take it. And then he runs down to Horb and he prosecutes the case against Israel. Instead of running for his life because he's afraid. Why would he be afraid after all that God has done? You know what I'm saying? I mean, so he sees, there's not going to be any change. But it's interesting that the word in the Hebrew for see and fear are almost identical. Yes? Yeah, it's a little bit different vowel pointing so that it sounds just a little bit different, but you know it's a play on the words see and fear. So. Alright, so explain the, lessons, the, the lesson learned. It's down in verse 4 and 5. Blessed is a man who makes Yahweh his trust, who does not turn to the proud to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Yahweh, my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. So what? explain the lesson learned as David is reflecting on the lesson learned from verses 1 through 3. What does he, what does he do in verse 4 and 5? Yeah, he worships. He not only worships, he does worship. He does some other things. What else does he do? Yeah, Yeah, he's preaching. He's not only preaching and telling. What else is he doing? Nobody knows? Crickets. Yes, he's not playing cricket. It's nothing, Listen, this is not rocket science. Notice how he's reminding himself why he needs to continue to walk with Yahweh. I have every reason to never turn my back on him and go after the proud. In fact, notice the parallel for proud. What's the parallel line for the proud? I will not turn aside and go after the proud who, who go astray where? After lies. Okay, so notice that we talked about this before. When God opposes the proud, pride can be God snubbing, but pride can also be all about slander and twisting the truth, lying, things like that. There's all kinds of avenues of pride. Here he puts together pride and he puts together with it falsehood, deceptive talk. It's interesting. But he's reminding himself I have no reason to follow their route, even though it may relieve my pressures in the moment. I have every reason to always trust in Yahweh because of what's happened. And I'm going to tell everybody about it! Woo! That's verse 8. Right? When it gets down to verse 8. Or the end of that verse uh, 5, excuse me. Alright, what else? Anybody else? Anything else on that? Let's see. Which direction are we being shown is best then? Huh? Yeah, trusting the Lord, right? Very simple, right? We're being given every reason to keep our confidence in the Lord, even when we find ourselves in a pit of destruction and in a miry bog. Even when we're in that, we have every reason to trust in the Lord. That's that's exactly what we should walk away with, okay? Yeah, yeah. It'll preach. May not be the right passage, but it'll preach. <laughs> yeah. Bogged. Yes. So Tim and Kathy Keller, uh, the Casans, gave us this book uh, for a Christmas present. You know how sometimes they'll walk around close to Christmas and they'll give you presents and stuff. They gave us uh, this Christmas present. It's probably been... Where's Anna? I know Anna's in here. There she is. Probably been about four years ago, maybe. And it's uh, by Tim and Kathy Keller. They're just, it's just devotions through the Psalms. It's really a nice, very simple devotional guide as they work through different, uh, through the Psalm. You do, end up doing all 150 Psalms in little chunks. And there's a prayer at the end. Uh, and the prayer the prayer on this first part on verses one through five, I thought was really good. It kind of gets at the lesson we learned. And here it is the prayer. Lord, I remember with deep gratitude some of those slimy pits you lifted me from and those firm rocks you put me upon. And that helps me wait for you again now. Amen. What a great prayer. All right, so that was that. Anybody else in verses 1 through 5? Verses 6 through 11. So David's statement in verse 6 shows that he gets an important principle. What is his important principle? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, huh? Yeah. Okay, right? Faith not works necessarily, right? The works show the faith, but it's not going to be the thing, right? What else? Huh? Yeah, doing His will. Does this remind you, does that verse happen to remind you of an episode maybe of David's predecessor (coughs) who hid behind sacrifices his half-obedience or disobedience? Any chance? Anybody? Saul, yeah. And you remember, what did the prophet Samuel say to Saul? Has the Lord his great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams, for stubbornness is as iniquity, and rebellion is as witchcraft, and so forth, right? And so, very fitting that David has learned the lesson. If he didn't know it before, he really gets it now. And that's the lesson. It's not that those things aren't important, but they're in their proper place. Sometimes we can play at religion and use it as a cover for our um, disobedience, our disbelief, whatever. Okay? And so it's an important principle he's, he's picked up there. Very good. So remember, there are layers to reading the Psalms. Okay? Steve actually has hinted at one of those layers. There's God's anointed one who wrote the psalm. There's God's people who are going to be incorporated in this and sing this psalm with him and thus find their story in the psalm. There's also God's Davidic son. So there's God's anointed one, God's people, and God's Davidic son. And by Davidic, I mean descendant of David, as God had promised, a descendant of David. Okay, And do you see where maybe the, that third layer is really beginning to be pronounced for a, for a season in this psalm. Yeah, verse 7. Yeah, yeah. So verse 7. Behold, I have c- come in the scroll of the book, and it is written to me, I delight to do your will, my God, your laws within my heart, I have told the glad news of deliverance to the great congregation, etc. Alright, so verse 7 And eight begin to sound as if they are spoken by whom? Yeah, our Lord Jesus. In fact, Luke 24, verse 44. He reminds after the resurrection, He reminds His disciples, look, I've been telling you, I told you the whole time I was with you, how Moses, the Psalms, and the prophets all speak of me. And notice here, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. But then those words actually get lifted out of Psalm 40 and put in Jesus mouth when you go to Hebrews 10. So everybody hold this and go to Hebrews 10 verses 5 through 10. Hebrews 10 verses 5 through 10. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me, and burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no, delight, no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, it is writ- as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And when he had, had said above, when he had said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, Then he added, Behold, I come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. I've come to do your will. By that will, by him being obedient to the Father, we have been sanctified. Somebody should hear, what's the doctrinal category for that? Jesus' righteousness becomes ours. Come on, come on, come on. Justification! By His doing the Father's will, always pleasing the Father, that becomes ours, right? And so there it's, it's right there. But notice how He brings in Psalm 40. He cannot help but bring in Psalm 40. He puts the words in Jesus' mouth. But Jesus would have sung this psalm a new, number of times, and so it's true. He said, when He came into the world, He said, of course, because He sang Psalm 40 more than once. And it's all about Him. Right? Especially those verses are primarily, primarily very pointedly about Him. Oh, before I get there. So, um, so notice what else is, if that's the case then, what else does our Lord do? So notice how verse 8, He's actually already kind of implied verse 8 back in Hebrews 10. I delight to do your will. I've come into the world to do your will. I delight to do your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. Jesus is the perfect law keeper, always doing the Father's will, and so forth. And then what does, what does He do? Starting at verse 9 through verse 10, He preaches. He proclaims, I have not restrained my lips, as you know. I've not hidden your deliverance in my heart. I've told everyone about your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation, and so forth. And that's why Jesus comes and He says He came as a preacher. That's exactly what He was supposed to do. Coming proclaiming the goodness, the faithfulness, and steadfastness of God that endures forever. So again, I recommend this book. I showed it to you last week. Mine's falling apart. I was afraid to bring it back in here and have all the pages drop out of it again. But Calvin points out, talking about verse 6, God requires not mere ceremonies of those who serve Him, but He is satisfied only with sincerity of heart, with faith and holiness of life, and He takes no pleasure merely in the visible sanctuary, the altar, the burning of incense, the killing of beasts, the lights, the costly apparel, and the outward washings. From this, David concludes that he ought to be guided by another principle and to observe another rule in the service of God than a mere attention to these that he should yield himself wholly to God. I mean, Calvin catches the principle that David has learned and picked up there. So, any, um, any questions or anything on those verses? Yes. Right. right? Yeah, no, that's great. Give me an open ear. like the, when the bond servant would uh, decide to stay with the family and they would pierce his ear, it'd stick him at the doorpost and they put the all through his ear. <laughs> looks like that, you know. I don't know if they put a gauge in there afterwards or anything, you know. Okay, good. So David then just can't keep his trap shut. So what does he do with God's good deliverance? As you're looking still at verses 6 to 11? What does he do? I've already kind of said it already, but you can say it now. He preaches. He won't stop. I'm going to tell everybody, your're great deliverance. I don't know about you, but that's informative for all of us, right? We're shy about it. We lived in Nebraska for some years. And it was really funny. Everybody, I used to joke and say, everybody, is as, everybody in Nebraska is as warm as the weather is. Sorry. But, but what was interesting is that nobody, and they, a lot of them went to church, and nobody talked about their faith. Nobody told you that they went to church. It was just like, you just don't do that. And so the very few people that you had come up to you and start talking to you about their Christianity, you could probably, you could bet your bottom dollar they were probably the real thing. Because they did what the culture wouldn't let them do. They told you, right? And they weren't usually bossy about it or anything, but they would just tell you. How important is it for us? It's not about us winning people over, though there's a part of that. But it's simply the declaring. Declaring God's steadfast love and His faithless and how it endures. You think about your kids and grandkids. You think about your neighbors. You think about your co-workers. You don't have to steal time from them if you're at work, you know, and and all that. But just simply, you know, how good is it to tell people about what God has done for you? Right? It's It's the natural thing to do after God's great deliverance. So, we've already been prepared for verses 9 and 10. Back up in verse 5, at the end of verse 5. So verse 9 and 10, I've told the glad news of your deliverance. Notice the last sentence of verse 5. What does he do at the last sentence of verse 5? Yeah, I will proclaim and tell them. what. Yet they are more than can be told. Okay, So we've already been prepared in verses 9 and 10. So David just cannot keep his trap shut. And it's wonderful. So what is the glad news? You look at verse 9. What is the glad news? Yeah, it is deliverance, right? And that's interesting language, the glad news. Does that make you think of some other phrase we use sometimes, a term we use? Good news and gospel, right? And so it's glad news. I've told the gospel of deliverance, the glad news of deliverance to the great congregation. Yeah, so where is then is the good news being broadcasted as you look at these verses and uh, what would he be be doing if he didn't broadcast it? So where is it being broadcast and what would he be doing if he didn't broadcast it? Yeah, it's in the great congregation. Anna asked me this yesterday, um, and I think that the great congregation is probably those festivals, there's three festivals where all of Israel is supposed to show up at the tabernacle, there's uh, at the... um, uh, at uh, Passover, at uh, Pentecost, and the Day of Atonement, the seventh month, the Feast of Booths and all that stuff. And that would have been the congregation gathered in its greatness, right? All the people gathered. He's probably talking about that. This, I told on the big days, you know, what you've done. Okay, What would he be doing if he didn't broadcast God's glad news, the glad news of God's deliverance? He'd be hiding it Yeah, it's the way he says that that makes you think that hiding it is what yeah that's not a good thing right and what else some sense of disobedience maybe or if not outright disobedience maybe just outright ingratitude I'm not thankful for your deliverance so I'm not going to tell anybody about it you know you remember Smeagol right I mean you know my precious, right? He just wanted to keep it all for himself. And you know, there's not an ounce of gratitude in that old boy, right? And so that's the same kind of thing. Sorry, all those Lord of the Rings analogies. So I'll be honest, those verses encourage me as a preacher. It's not about necessarily the results. It's just telling the good news, right? After Sunday and Sometimes when you, if you ever teach or you ever preach, if you ever get a chance to exhort or any of those things, you always know there's this letdown because you wonder, did I do what I was supposed to? And then I run across verse 9 and 10. Oh, I did do what I was supposed to. I told the great congregation the, the, glad, the glad news of your deliverance. You know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So those verses, they really do. They really do encourage me. So notice uh, verse 9, I have not restrained, um, and also it's uh, verse Verse 10, I have not concealed is the, is the synonym he uses, but verse 9, I have not restrained is met by not restrained in verse 11. I have not restrained my lips, so what did God not restrain? Yes! And then, interesting, pulling those connections together. It's not that one earns and deserves the other, but he's just using the same thing, just as in the way that I was glad to tell everybody, you were glad to show mercy to me. I've not restrained my lips. You've not restrained your mercy. Okay? Yes? Oh, yeah. Don't quench the spirit. Yeah, in 1 Thessalonians 5. Yes. Okay. So, what is David banking on? As you look at six to eleven, what is David banking on? Okay. Yes. Yeah, so, notice the verb tense. You will not restrain. You will not. Uh, you will ever preserve me. Right, so he's banking on it in the future. So Alan was kind of hinting at that with some of the verb tense earlier. So based on what God has done, he has confidence looking toward what's around him in the present and, and in the future. You, you will. You will not restrain your mercy. You will preserve me. Your steadfast love and faithfulness will preserve me. He's banking on it. Everybody see that? Am I Okay. Got to flip the paper. So how often is steadfast love and faithfulness and not always in that order, how often are they said in those verses right there in the very heart of this psalm? Huh? Yeah, yeah. But how often are they said? How often are they repeated? Is that statement repeated? (laughs) Several. Good job, John. Can we have a number? I see two. I see two. Do I hear three? Can I get a three? I see three right there. Anybody else? Does anybody see more than three? If you do, we need to talk. Huh? We need to talk. Yes, three. Notice that it says it's in backward order in the middle of verse 10. Your faithfulness and your salvation. And then right after that, your steadfast love and your faithfulness. So those, it's a synonymous your salvation, synonymous with steadfast love. And then again, when you get down to verse 11, your steadfast love and your faithfulness. He it just, it just keeps coming back at it. He can't let it go. Okay? Alright, you ready to move on? Okay, verses 12 through 17. So in verses 1 through 11, God's deliverance is very clear. It's His past and present deliverance which gives David confidence in future grace. But all of this is deliverance in in sorry I need an editor in the swell of danger. Notice it's deliverance in the swell of danger. You can't miss it when you look at verses 12, 12 through seventeen because you immediately realize there's trouble. Evils have compassed me, encompassed me. Okay, um, and then he starts praying about let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether. Seek to snatch away my life, etc. Now the reason why I'm bringing that up, because I think that's really helpful for us, because we often think, you know, I've heard, I've, I've said it myself, I'm almost certain, and I've heard others say it as well. Well, God rescued me. Why am I having these troubles? Right? We forget that the rescue is not mean from everything all at one time necessarily. Right? He's delivered him, and yet he's still in a swell, the swell of danger. Right? There's still trouble around him. So what are the dangers? As you look especially at verse 12, what are the dangers? And maybe, and then just kind of work through them. Yeah, evils. Whose? My iniquities. Isn't that interesting? Did John say something? Oh, Steve. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay? Yeah, encompass me beyond number. But then his mind goes, he's surrounded by evils, but then his mind, his heart goes right to himself. My own iniquities have overtaken me. I cannot see. My iniquities are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. So again, as he's going through trouble, his, he, he cannot miss his own sins. Right? He cannot miss his own faults and how he's failed. Okay, What else? We're back to a miry bog. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, who will deliver me from this body of death? Yes. Romans chapter 7. It could. Or to the cross. Depends on where, where you focus. And the first eleven verses should take you, should help you to focus when you're in twelve through seventeen, should help you to focus on the cross, right? Upon Christ. And not just the cross, but also the empty tomb. Because you know, yes, he really did deliver us from our sins, the 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 penalty of our sin, the power of our sin, and so forth, right? And he is delivering us from the presence of our sin. How do I know? Because he came out of the grave, body, blood, bones, toenails, and hair. Yes, and he suffered on our behalf, right? Yeah, pretty good. All right, so notice that God's steadfast love and faithfulness freed David up to recognize his sin. We've already talked about that in verse 12. And I think that's uh, uh, indicative, or not indicative, um, indicative for us, something like that. As he goes, it's after verses 1 through 11 where he's dwelling upon God's great deliverance, he now is actually. Uh, liberated to own up to his own sins as part of the problem. Right? So when we don't recognize God's goodness uh, and we don't uh, hold to it, then we hide our sins. We often hide them. I think it was um, Austin Royal, I was at an installation service for Wilson Van Hooser up at Grace in Stillwater. And Austin Royal, the RUF campus minister in Arkansas, was telling the story about his little daughter who had done something. I don't know what she did. She hit her brother or something. I don't know what she did. And he says to her, he says, did you do this? No, Daddy, I didn't do this. Now, honey, you know, I love you. I'm not going to punish you. I just want you to tell me the truth. Did you do this? Yes, Daddy, I did do it. Right? But once that was recognized that she was, you know, that her dad really loved her, she felt free to say, yes, yes. She owned up to what she had done wrong. I think it's the same kind of pattern you see here, after verses one to eleven. Now in verse twelve, in the midst of all the trouble, he realizes his own part in the trouble. My own sins are part of the trouble and the danger, part of the miry bog. Is, and it was bringing that up. So Derek Kidner says this in his little commentary: whatever had been the miry bog of verse two. The present troubles are largely of David's own making, which are catching up with him now. Notice the expression overtaken. I think that's really helpful for us. We, we are too prone, because we're humans, to excuse ourselves and put all of our trouble on somebody else. They're the trouble, right? And you hear this when we're going through first and second chronicles, you will hear this brought up over and over again. Their exile was their own making, and he will not let them wiggle out of it. And we need to recognize that. It's too easy for us to say, all of my troubles are Wes's fault. Now they are, but that's beside the point, right? But to recognize my own fault in all of that. Very rarely will somebody else do something that will devastate me personally by itself, right? I mean, it happens at times. But in our relationships, very rarely is it just that person's actions. Sometimes and most often, I add to their sinful actions with my sinful responses. Or maybe their sinful reactions are a response to my sinful actions. Does any of this make sense? Huh? Not a bit? Yeah, no, thank you, Dean. Great. So it's really, I think it's really helpful, as Derek Kinder's pointed that out, st- stopping before you start excusing. And shifting the blame to stop and actually ask yourself in all integrity and honesty before God, am I part of the problem? Have I actually exacerbated the situation and made it maybe even worse to where I'm now overtaken? I think that's the right frame of mind to actually have. Again, as I said in First Chronicles, he will not let them go. He wants them to recognize that's what they have to do and that will then make Second Chronicles 7.14 actually make sense. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked way, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sins and heal their land or heal the kingdom, heal the church. As, as, as that actually is in its context. So I think that's extremely important. And I think he's got the right observation there. Okay, let's move on. So what is exacerbating David's guilt? Well, it's the, we'll just move on quickly. It's the, it's the fact that his own guilt is now exacerbated with the troublemakers around him. And so the danger is both within his sin and without his adversaries. So there's a wise lesson here. We actually kind of dealt with that, so I'm going to leave that there. So then verses 13 through 17 are actually repeated again, or almost identical to Psalm 70. When you go to Psalm 70, it's really all of verses 13 through 17 with a little bit of tweaks here and there, little differences. But I just want to point that out to you. That this is a... Uh, when something is repeated more than once, you should sit up and take notice. When verses 13 and 17 are repeated again, you should sit up and take notice. Wow. This is a great prayer. And I need to remember this. Okay? So what is being asked for negatively and then what is being asked for positively I don't know how else to ask this question but what's being asked for in the negative side of things yeah let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether but why yes yes so it's not just because he didn't like them. Notice they're actually doing something immoral. And it's almost as if David is saying, let the very things that they're trying to do fall on their heads. Right? So what's, what else is he... What's another negative one? Right in the middle of verse 14. Come on. Or at the end of verse 14. Yeah, that was right at the beginning. Yeah, turned back and brought to dishonor. And, and why? Because these are the people who delight in my hurt. Okay, what's the last one? Verse 15. Yeah, let them become appalled of their own shame who run around bragging. That's what the aha, aha means. Aha, aha. Right? So that's the idea. So that's the negative. What's the positive? What is he positively asking? To help him, but also who else? Yeah, all who seek you. Right? And then interesting that he can't stop. He can't, he just doesn't, He's not satisfied to pray for himself. He's praying for all who seek the Lord. Right? His dilemma brings him to intercede on behalf of others. And that's what you see in verse 16. And then he ends in verse 17. It's a sense of humility. I am poor and needy. Now David was a king. He was wealthy. So poor, again, does not always refer to your econ- economics. Right? It has to do with your condition. I'm poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought for me. What another positive reminder. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. And that's where he ends. Do not delay in helping. So what is being asked for in the final verse? When you look at verse 17? Yeah, don't delay. Hurry up. I'm in desperate need. I don't know. Nobody else has ever prayed that. I am sure. But that should encourage you. It's okay to pray that. All right, so here's some questions. As you think through then Psalm 40, what are some lessons to take away? Some of our troubles were our own fault. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and the external ones. Yeah. Yes, Joanne. Wait patiently. Yeah, while you're praying, do not delay. That, that's a great. That's a great connection. I waited patiently. Do not delay. Right, perfect. Yeah, remembering him. Well, his steadfast love and his faithfulness. Yep. Mm hmm. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, right. Kristen. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, the trick, trick there is not to remain looking inward because then that's, you know, that's a mess in there. So don't, don't go there very long, right? But it, there is a balance. Actually, I hate to use that term, but it actually works. There's a balance there in Psalm 40 between the external prob- problems and then his own internal part of it, right? And so he doesn't obsess on either one, per se, if you will. Yes, Joanne. Yeah, 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 D said, that's what we all say, yes, yeah, no, I mean, he's not, I mean, he's not saying, if I understand your question, um, The evil do, those who are causing trouble are causing trouble for their own reasons. And it reminds him of his own sin and how his own sin is a part of that. And so it's not really a, I don't want the consequences of this. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah, I mean, there's no, that connection is not there in that sense. It's almost as if the trouble is coming and he is reminding him of his sin and his sin is involved in it, but they're not necessarily coming because he's, he's done something bad per, on their part, right? And so, I mean, you think about our Lord, well, you think about our Lord Jesus. I mean, all the people involved in his crucifixion gladly and happily did it, but it was all according to God's predestined plan, said Peter, right? But they're all on board, happy to do it for their own reasons and all their own motivations. And it's the same thing here. For their own reasons and own motivations they're wanting to do this but his own sin is coming up and he sees how it exacerbates the situation. I hope I answered your question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who sinned? His mom? His dad? Himself? Yeah, no. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. And that'd be a good way to put it. So describe some of the things that lift your heart as you look at Psalm 40. Fred. Yeah, yeah. 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 Anybody else? Yes. That is amazing, isn't it? The Lord takes thought of us. Great. Um, so, how does the Psalm give you steady ground under your feet while the world shifts and shakes? Well, there's that. Absolutely. And and that mean and there's also God's trustworthiness. You know, you can run to Him and rely on Him, right? Yeah. Yes. He is, and He's the one who sets our feet upon a rock and steadies our feet. As I've said a hundred times, the Christian people should be the steadiest, most sturdiest people in a society, especially a society that is being shaken and blown to pieces with all kinds of winds passing through, right? And here Psalm 40, I think, lays that out for us again. Okay, let's move on. So how could you use Psalm 40 to ground your sister? who is being slandered by her husband and viciously mistreated by him. This is a throughout a scenario. But how could you use Psalm 40 to help ground her, and give her some steadiness in a situation like that? I have often asked Jesus why is a 45 caliber not in the church discipline tool chest? And he said, because I'd have to use it on you. But that's another story. So, How would you be able to use Psalm 40 to help ground sister sisters going through that kind of hardship? Yeah. You can trust the Lord. He's the one that lifts you out of a miry bog. He sets your feet on a rock. Yeah. Yes right yeah yeah and you and you could even yeah his faithfulness yeah and then you could you could even bring in verse 13 and through 17 yes sister it is okay for you to pray this about an abusive husband but the very things he's doing fall upon his own head deliver me make speed haste right very good okay So in what ways does Psalm 40 prepare you to go into the great congregation with hope even if you are surrounded by a swell of danger? I'm going to just leave that question there and we're going to pray, okay? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much that your steadfast love and faithfulness and your salvation endure. That we can count on you, that you will not restrain your mercy from us, that your steadfast love and faithfulness will ever preserve us. That we can run to you, waiting patiently for you while we also cry out, do not delay, oh my God. Thank you that you, think you take thought toward us. And so Lord, whatever, wherever anybody is here right now in their own situations, I pray that your goodness and your good news and your mercy and grace will buoy them up and sustain them. And I pray that as we get ready to go into the great congregation, our hearts will be filled with hope the hope that comes through your Son, Jesus Christ, the hope that comes being poured into our hearts by your Holy Spirit. And I pray, Lord, that you would open our lips that we may tell the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation by word and with sacrament and in prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.